You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. So today we have a huge honor to welcome Sal Khan to here to Stanford. Sal is a world-renowned educator and entrepreneur. He's the founder of Khan Academy, which is a free online education platform. Starting in a small room in his home, Sal has produced 5,000 video lessons teaching a wide spectrum of academic subjects, mainly focusing on math and sciences. As of today, the Khan Academy's YouTube channel attracts more than 2 billion subscribers, and the videos have been viewed by over 400 million times. As a result of his work, in 2012, Time Magazine named Sal Khan on the annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. He has degrees in math, electrical engineering, and computer science from MIT, and he also went to Harvard Business School. Please join me in welcoming Sal Khan. It's always, always great to be here, and I, and I actually do like to start just kind of getting a gauge of, of, of where everyone is. Uh, so I, I saw how many of y'all are students, actually would be more, how many of y'all are not students? Would might be a more interesting. Okay, so there actually are, are and, and, and how many of y'all are undergrads? And how many of y'all are grad students? Okay, that's interesting. And, and how many of y'all uh, uh, have used Khan Academy at, at some point? Oh, okay. And, 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 and how many of you still use Khan Academy every now and then? And Okay, that, that's good to know. And, um, and how many of you have no idea what Khan Academy is? There's always somebody. Okay, good, good. No, that's good. I'll talk to you. Right. Uh, so so as, as, as I guess a lot of folks know, Khan Academy, you know, it's associated with these videos. Uh, but hopefully what we'll kind of talk about over the next hour or so is that it's, it's in, at least in my mind, much, much, much more than just videos and, and will continue to be uh, uh, so. But to get everyone on the same page, I, I will start with this little montage of, of videos just so people get a, get a feel of what, what they look like. All these interactions are just due to gravity. This is an age right after Isaac Newton. I'm told the humidity makes it feel hotter. Why is this? Excellent question, LeBron. pleasure <laughs> <laughs> he had. Can you determine which light bulb is being switched? Things actually can interbreed, although for these two in particular, it seems like the mechanics would get kind of difficult. And I can keep playing around with these numbers and see what kind of colors I can come up with. If this does not blow your mind, then you have no emotion. Let's <laughs> <laughs> me back up. So those are the videos, but as, as I mentioned, it's, 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 it's much more than, than just videos. This right over here is our computer science platform that we launched about two years ago, and it's really, our thinking was, well, can we show people the creative side of computer science, where it's not you know, reductionist, what's a for loop or a variable, but really build portfolios, create games, screensavers, explore mathematical concepts, whatever else. This right over here is kind of, I would say the, the meat of our experience, which is you know, students can pick missions to work on in mathematics, they can work on their skills, it, it starts to build a statistical model of what they know and they don't know, it, it suggests exercises that, that are appropriate to the students, the videos are there in case the student might use it, when they're done they get this mission completion, there's all sorts of, all sorts of game mechanics around it. 
And you know, we, we'll talk more about where, where all of that stuff is going and what other types of experiences we, we have in, in the pipeline, so to speak. Uh, but I'll, 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 you know, before I go there and, and before I talk about kind of how all of this happened, uh, you know, this is kind of a snapshot of, of where we are right now. Uh, it's being used in some way, shape, or form, almost anywhere. Uh, 10 million users every month, 300,000 teachers are using us in some way. Uh, at least they've been registered as teachers, and you know, we just crossed the two billionth exercise done on, on, on Khan Academy. There's about five million, million a day. Uh, but I'll, I'll rewind back to, I guess, the humble beginnings of this. Of this. And you know, it's, it's fun to, to talk in this area because all of this happened um, not too far for, from here. Um, or, or at least eventually happened not too far from here. Uh, if you rewind back to 2004, I was a year out of business school. I, uh, I had just gotten married. Family was visiting me out from New Orleans. It came out of conversation that my 12-year-old cousin Nadia was uh, weak in mathematics. Uh, I asked her what was going on. She took a placement test at the end of sixth grade. She says it had unit conversion on it. She, had, she gets confused by unit conversion, ounces to gallons, miles to kilometers. And because of that, she bombed it, and they placed her into a, into a slower math track. And so I told her, look, you know, I, think, I think with a little work, you can, you can get up that curve. And, and I don't think she or her mom fully appreciated the implications of being put in a slower math track in sixth grade, because that kind of carries with you the rest of your life. And so uh, I said, and I'll tutor you if you're up for it. And so Nadia agreed. She goes back to New Orleans. I'm in Boston. We're on the phone every day, uh, half an hour every day after work, after school for her. And we start working with each other. And, you know, first few weeks, kind of painful. She'd psyched herself out. She's, you know, I'm not good at math. I can't get this stuff. But slowly but surely, things started to click. Uh, about a month into it, she started to get unit conversion and kind of catch up to where her class needed, where her, uh, where her class was. And then she got a little bit ahead of the curve. I started teaching her some algebraic concepts and things. And, and at that point, I became what I call a, a, a tiger cousin. And so I... <laughs> I, I emailed, uh, I, I called up her, her, high sc her, her school, her middle school, and I said, you know, I, I really think uh, Nadia Rahman should retake that placement exam from last year. Uh, they said, who are you? And I, I, I said, I'm, I'm her cousin. Um, and they actually did let her take it, and uh, she did very well, and she went from the slow track to the advanced track. And so I was, you know, and, I, and we continued to work together, and I was like, wow, you know, I didn't have, that was a very small intervention I did, and it, it had an impact on, on Nadia's trajectory, I, I, so I was kind of hooked, and so I started working with her younger brothers, uh, and then a bunch of things happened over the next roughly two years. Um, first, uh, uh, my, my boss, I, you know, uh, the firm I was working for, and I use the term very generously, it was my, me, my boss, and, and his dog. We, uh, the, the dog was the chief economist. We, um, we the, the, it was a small hedge fund, and my boss's wife uh, just took a, a position as a professor at Stanford Law School. And so because of that, we moved the firm out here. We moved out of Silicon, uh, right, right on Sand Hill Road, that kind of five-story building right next to the Safeway over there. And, um, and, and the other things that happened was I, you know, word got around in the family that, that free tutoring was going on, and so I found myself working with 10, 15 cousins every day after uh, work and, and school for them. And, and to help myself kind of scale up a little bit, 
I, you know, my background was in software, and I think anyone who's ever dabbled in software has always fantasized, well, yeah, this could be really useful for education or to give people practice problems or whatever else. And you know, I'm not the first person to think that. And so I started writing this little exercise generator for, for my cousins. Just give them as many problems as they need. If they, need if, they had, if they needed help with something, it would give them hints, give them solutions, put a little database behind it so I could keep track of, of what they were doing. I had to put it on a, you know, it was a web app, so I, you know, what domain name's available, and I, after a long time, I said, well, you know, it's just me and my cousins, Khan Academy's available, I'll call it that. Uh, and it kind of sounds like something real. And, and uh, so, so I, I did that, and uh, you, you fast forward, so all the way, so now I'm living out here, and actually I used to, you know, I literally used to ride my bike through campus every day on the way to work, and I... Um, and I was at a friend's house, this is November 2006, and I was showing everybody all this stuff. All my friends knew that I had this crazy project with my cousins. And I was showing the software and everything, and one of my friends, his name's Zuli Ramzan, and he said, well, you know, this is, this is cool, Sal, and, and you know, this is neat software and everything, but I only have one question. How are you scaling up your, your tutorials, your lessons? And I said, no, you're right, this is, this is really hard. What I could do with just Nadia or just Nadia and her brothers when there was you know, one, two, or three people, I can't do now at 10 or 15. I'm doing these crazy conference calls. Sometimes you know, one week, uh, Sasha asked a question, and I had kind of already covered that the week before with, with Ali. And so uh, Zuli says, well, you know, it's like a crazy idea. Why don't you just uh, record some of your lessons as videos and, and upload them on to YouTube? And I, I said, no, that, that's a horrible idea. YouTube is for cats playing piano. It's not for, for serious mathematics. Uh, but I went home that weekend, got over the idea that it wasn't my idea, and I decided to, 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 to give it a shot. And, um, you know, those, those first few videos were on pre-algebra, basic algebra, whatever else. Uploaded them. I started telling my cousins, hey, look, here's some of the, the concepts that I, I think y'all would, would, you know, y'all have asked a lot of questions about. So why don't you review them or get introduced to them through, through these videos, and then when we get on the phone, we can, we can dig deeper. And after about a month of that, I, you know, they, they gave positive feedback. They said that they, they found it really valuable. And, and you know, to the point that they even said that you know, they, they liked me better on YouTube than in, than in person. <laughs> and and, and on, 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 a, on a whole bunch of levels, that's a completely counterintuitive comment. Uh, you know, that, that somehow the virtual on-demand version of a cousin could be better than, than the real thing. And, and, but, but what they're really saying is, is that the first time you're being exposed to a concept, you don't want someone who might be judging you or is waiting for you to understand it. You, you want to be able to ask the silly questions without judgment, watch something over and over again. What they weren't saying is that they didn't appreciate me in their life, that they appreciated it, you know, that I took interest, that I was trying to motivate them, that I was trying to give them the bigger picture, that I was there to answer questions that they had. So I, I took that as positive feedback, kept making more and more and more content. And as obviously it's on YouTube, it's public. And it soon became clear that people who are not my cousins were, were watching. And, you know, the, the initial comments, you know, there was just some, you know, thank you that started coming in. And, and even that's a big deal. I, I don't know how much time you all spend on YouTube. Most of the comments are not thank you. They're <laughs> something a little more colorful than, than that. Uh, but, but then, you know, started getting comments of, hey, I've just retired from the military and I want to go back to college. And this is, this is what gave me the, the intellectual bridge to re-engage and, and do college-level mathematics. Got letters, uh, you know, this is the reason why uh, my, my, my child with a learning disability is able to engage in school. Uh, this is the reason I'm passing algebra. This is the reason I didn't drop out of high school. I mean, there's really intense things. You know, I got this letter um, in those early days. This was like 2007. It was like a year into it. 
I brought my wife. I was like, this is incredible. This, this, uh, this mother, her, both of her sons had dyslexia and said, this is, you know, these videos are the only thing that's, that's connecting with them. They like the handwriting and they like the, the kind of the narration and, you know, and, and because of what it's doing for their family, uh, her whole family prays for my family every night. And, 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 and which is, you know, heady, thing, heady stuff. I mean, put things in perspective. I, I, I was an analyst at a hedge fund. I, there wasn't a lot of prayer or a lot of praying for us at least. Uh, and, and, or at least in that way. And, and uh, so, so you can imagine this was an incredibly satisfying just hobby uh, uh, for me. Uh, but then you fast forward, obviously the, the traffic keeps growing and growing and growing. And, you know, the videos kind of take a life of, of their own. They were initially there as kind of this supplemental thing for my cousins, a thing to complement this software thing that I was working on. And I was still working on the software, but the videos started taking more and more of my time. And, but you go to 2008, at that point, there were probably several tens of thousands of people using the videos every month. Um, at that point, I still didn't think this was what I was going to do for my life. I actually liked my career, kind of being an investment manager, analyst, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it. But I, I did set it up as a, as a not-for-profit at that point, thinking, oh, well, maybe I could get some donors, and maybe we can get enough funding to hire a small team to, to start working on this in a more substantive way, maybe working on the software part of it. Uh, but then by 2009, at this point, now we had on the order of about 100,000 people who are using the site every month. And I, frankly, had trouble focusing on anything else. This is what I was excited about. This is what, uh, you know, every, every cycle, I was like, oh, how, what's the next video I can do? How could I make this better? How could I cater to, you know, these, these, these uh, requests that I'm getting from, from users? And so, you know, my wife and I, we, we looked at our financials, and, you know, we, we, we had some savings, uh, but, you know, it was essentially for a down payment on a house here, which you all know is not a, a simple matter. Uh, uh, but, but we said, well, look, it, this looks like there's something here, and it looks like the time is right. Let's give it a year, essentially live off of savings, and, and see if, if we can get this, this, this not-for-profit off the ground. And, you know, I, I think all entrepreneurial beginnings... Uh, whether they're not-for-profit or for-profit, they do start with a little bit of this wildly optimistic, maybe even delusion, because you do get data points. A lot of people say, oh, this is great. This is great stuff you're doing. Oh, you should talk to us. We might be interested in funding it. And so that gets you really excited. Uh, but then you start the meetings, and you have all these great meetings, uh, but then you start to see a pattern that, you know, wow, a lot of people like this, but it's not quite what they invest in. It's not quite what they fund. This is a different thing than they do. And that ha kept happening uh, for... Uh, the next several months, and if you, as you go into the spring of 2010, I, I started to get worried. You know, we were digging, my son had just been born, uh, we, we were digging into our, we had to move into a, a, a house, because, you know, with higher rent, we were digging into our savings about $5,000 a month, and, uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, I was getting five, ten dollar donations on PayPal, it was amounting to about $500 a month, and if it was any of you, thank you. Um, uh, but, but you can imagine it was a fairly stressful thing. And, you know, I was starting to wonder, could I even go back to my old job? What will they think? And, and all of that. And, and, you know, I, but I did even in moments of weakness start updating my resume. And, um, uh, but, but then all of a sudden a $10,000 donation came in. So I, I mean, who, you know, what's going on here? And I see her name is Ann Doerr, uh, based in Palo Alto. I immediately email her and I said, well, you know, thank you so much for this incredibly generous donation. Uh, if we were a physical school, you would not have a building named after you. <laughs> and and uh, Anne immediately emailed back. She's like, well, you know, I'm local, and I've, I've started using your site with my daughter. I also use it myself to understand, uh, you know, I had all these videos on the financial crisis and economics and what, whatnot. I'd love to, to learn more about what you're up to. 
And so I think it was like three days later where we meet in downtown on University Avenue at an at a, at a Indian buffet restaurant. And uh, Ann asks me, so, you know, what, what's your goal here? And I say, well, look, you know, when you fill out the paperwork with the IRS to become a not-for-profit, they, there's a line that's, you know, mission, colon, and I guess a line or a line and a half. And I filled out a, a free world-class education for anyone anywhere. And, and Ann says, well, that's ambitious. Um, how do you see yourself doing that? And I told her, you know, this is just, this is a mission. Uh, you know, it's not like I, I don't plan to just check it off tomorrow and then move on to, to health care or something. But, uh, but, but, but I think we can make, 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 make a lot of progress. I, you know, I showed her screenshots of the software. I said, in my mind, it's not just about videos. We obviously could do a lot of videos. We could translate the videos. But it's more than that. We have to create interactive experiences, ways for students to get feedback, ways for students to connect with each other, ways for students to, to work on projects. Kind of, you know, I only dreamt about the computer science stuff at that time. Uh, ways for them to tutor each other. And, and Anne says, well, you know, somewhat surprisingly, you, you've made a lot of progress here. I, I only have one question. How are you supporting yourself? And in as proud of a way as possible, I said, I'm not. <laughs> and, and Anne kind of processed that, and we, we part ways. And 10 minutes later, I'm coming into my driveway in Mountain View, and uh, I get a text message from Anne. And it says, you really need to be supporting yourself. I've just wired you $100,000. <laughs> so that was a good day. And, and, you know, and it just, uh, things started just getting crazier and crazier from there. You fast forward about a month. Uh, you know, I was this virtual teaching, video-making guy. But I've never viewed that as somehow replacing a physical experience. I've always viewed this as liberating the physical experience. Hey, if people can get explanations at their own time and pace, if they can get problems and feedback at their own time and place, if they can, can get core skills at their own time and place, that frees up the human experience for more interaction, for conversation, for simulations. And so to kind of explore that idea, I was, I was running, this is actually the second year, I was running a little summer camp uh, with a friend, Aragon Burlingham, out, out in Portola Valley. And we were in the middle, it was for middle school kids, and we were in the middle of a simulation. I had six kids playing a game of risk. And while that was happening, the other 20 students were trading securities based on the outcome of the game of risk. Very good game. And uh, one student invented naked shorting on his own. Uh, it's not naked, you know, shorting without owning the security. You're selling it without actually borrowing it. But anyway, it was fascinating. That was a 12-year-old. I, I told him we could get him an internship. But, the, um, <laughs> but while that... While that thing was happening, all of a sudden I start getting text messages from Anne, which you could imagine I now take very seriously. <laughs> and, 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 and they read along the lines, and they were hard to read, there were like six or seven in a row, and I couldn't tell which came before which. It, they read along the lines of, I'm at the Aspen Ideas Festival, uh, in the main pavilion at the Aspen Ideas Festival, Walter Isaacson on stage with Bill Gates, Bill Gates' last five minutes talking about Khan Academy. And, 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 and you know, I, I didn't know what to make of this, and, and so I, I immediately boot the nearest seventh grader off of a computer, <laughs> and I start looking for some evidence of this event that, that Anne is referring to. And after about 20 or 30 minutes, I did find the footage of the event. It was Walter Isaacson, head of the Aspen Institute, asked, you know, they're on sta sitting on stage, asked Bill's, Bill Gates, uh, you know, what, are, what, what, what are you excited about these days? And, and, and Bill, I, I call him Bill now, uh, <laughs> Bill uh, just starts, uh, you know, says there's this new site called Khan Academy. I use it with my kids. I use it myself. You know, and he, and he goes on and on and on and on. And it, it was clear he'd spent a lot of time on the site. 
and, and you can imagine what I was feeling. You know, I was, it, was, it, felt, it was surreal. I was excited. I didn't, but then I started actually getting nervous. Those, those videos were for Nadia, not, not Bill Gates. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I go home, and you know, a few friends started to catch wind of it. A few of them were actually were in the audience, and they, they immediately emailed me and, and, and whatnot. I showed my wife. I, and, and then I, 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 you know, I well, what do I do now? You know, this thing clearly happened someplace in the universe, but you know, what, what's the next step? You know, do, do I call him? <laughs> do I, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm assuming he's, he's not listed. And, and, and they, frankly, left me in that, that limbo for the next two weeks. Two weeks later, I'm, I'm in our walk-in closet about to record a video, and all of a sudden the cell phone rings. It's from Seattle. You know, I answer it. I mean, hello. Hi, this is Larry Cohen. I'm Bill Gates' chief of staff. Uh, you might have heard that Bill's a fan. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> if, if, if you're free in the next few weeks, uh, we'd love to fly you up to Seattle and learn more about what you're doing and see if there's ways that we could work together or possibly support you. And I was looking at my calendar for the month, completely blank. <laughs> so I said, yeah, you know, maybe on Wednesday I've got to cut my nails and do some laundry, but I think I could meet, meet with Bill Gates. And so we met, and it, you know, the meeting, Frank, was very similar to that, that meeting with Anne. What would I hope to do? I, you know, I kind of painted the vision of at all these slides that I had and you know, what, what this could be, how much more than just videos. Um, and, and, and they kind of processed that. Right around the same time, folks from Google reached out, asked the same types of questions, told them the same thing. And all of these things just you know, it went really from, from uh, you know, famine to feast within a, a matter of months where... All of these people all of a sudden say, you know, we think this is a real thing that's worth supporting. And so in October of 2010, uh, Gates Foundation and Google gave the first initial funding, and since then there's been many other great supporters, uh, to kind of build the real vision of, of a free world-class education for anyone anywhere. And what we kind of focused on in the beginning was the extension of that software that I started working on in my cousin, with my cousins. And this right over here is kind of a zoomed out version of our knowledge map. And the knowledge map is no longer our primary navigation interface. But I, I like to show it just because it, at least it, it's, a, it's a conceptual depiction or a visual depiction of how we think about at least math. You, you saw in the videos, the site goes well beyond math. I'm, it sounds like a lot of y'all have experienced uh, Khan Academy well beyond math. Uh, but math is still where we've, we've invested the most. And the general idea is each of those circles are a concept in math. At the top are you know, basic arithmetic. And as students show mastery, it moves them down that, that, that graph, that, that map. And on a lot of levels, that's common sense. That's how a video game works. You beat level one, and then you go to level two. It's the way a martial art would work. You, you practice the white belt, and then once you master the white belt exam, then you become a yellow belt. It's the way a musical, uh, uh, practicing a musical instrument would work. But we always point out that's not the way that a traditional academic model works. Uh, the academic model, especially the academic model of roughly the last 200 years, groups students together, usually by age, and then it moves them together at a set pace. And what typically happens in the classroom is some part of classroom is devoted to lecturing on a new concept. Some part of it is reviewing the previous night's homework. Students go home. They do more homework. Come the next day, review homework, lecture, homework, lecture, homework, lecture. After about two or three weeks of that, they have an exam. And let's say that exam, the, the current unit is on uh, basic exponents. And on that exam, let's say I get an 80%, you get a 90%, you get a 95%, you get a 60%. And even though that exam, however imperfect it might be, even though it identified those gaps, the 60% person didn't know 40% of that exam, the 90, even the A student didn't know 5% of that exam, the class then moves on to the next concept. 
a concept that's likely to be building on top of that, negative exponents or logarithms or, or, or whatever else. And, and to kind of, kind of understand on some level the absurdity of that, imagine if we did other things in our life that way. Say, home building. So you, you, you bring the contractor in and you say, well, we've been told that we have three weeks to build a foundation. Do what you can. And so they do what they can. Maybe it rains. Maybe the, some of the workers don't show up. Maybe they fall sick. Supplies don't show up. After three weeks, you get the inspector to come. And the inspector says, well, you know, that part's not quite up to code. That concrete's still not dry. I'd give it a 75%. So great, that's a C minus. Let's build the first floor. Same thing. We have two weeks, do what you can. 80%. Second, second floor, we have four weeks, do what you can. And you, you keep doing this process, and then all of a sudden you're working on the fourth floor, and the whole thing collapses. And if your reaction to that is what our reaction typically is to kind of failures in education, it's like, oh, we must have had a bad contractor, or we, we, maybe we didn't have enough inspection, or maybe the inspection wasn't good enough. And, and maybe that was some of it, but the, the, the obvious problem was that the process was broken. We were artificially constraining how long someone had to do something. Then we, we went through the trouble of doing an inspection, of assessing the current state of things, but when we identified gaps, we just ignored them, and then we built on top of those gaps. And then we're surprised when all of a sudden we, we have a kind of a failure of the entire system. And so what we believe in is instead of holding fixed when and how long you have to learn something, and the variable is how well you learn it, A, B, C, D, F, should be the other way around. What's variable is how long and when you have to learn something, and what's fixed is that you should get to a high level of at least proficiency and, and, and preferably mastery. This right over here, you know, right when we got out of the gate, it, you know, it was kind of surprising to me, but it was always the dream to be used in schools, and some schools reached out to us, especially in locally in, in Los Altos, and they said, what, how could you imagine this being used in a, in, a, in a real classroom? And we said, well, uh, we don't think the lecture should be the focal point of the classroom anymore. We don't think, and if lecture isn't the focal point of the classroom anymore, you don't have to move everyone together at the same pace. You don't have to separate the, the strong from the, the weak students anymore. Instead, students can learn at their own pace, you know, watching videos if they need to, uh, doing exercises, getting feedback, and the classroom should be a place for interaction. And we can arm teachers with dashboards like this, and this is just one of 50 ways that te teachers can look at the information. And, and you, can, you, can, you can use this to facilitate uh, kind of peer-to-peer -peer learning, where a teacher can say, okay, look, it looks, like, it looks like James is having trouble with solid geometry. It's a, a teacher, if I'm the teacher, I could, easily, I could either say, okay, I'm going to go sit next to James while everyone else works at their own pace. Or even better, I could say, okay, it looks like, looks like Marsha is proficient in that. Maybe she could be, tutor James, or maybe Ben has already mastered it. He could tutor James, and then they both benefit. James gets the benefit of getting personalized attention. Ben or Marsha get the, the benefit of learning to, to kind of empathize and communicate and explain concepts, and, and frankly, and lear, learn, learn the concept that much deeper. This is some uh, data from a, a charter school in Oakland, California. It's Oakland Unity. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's serving an underserved population. These, it's a ninth grade algebra class here. And you know, I, I want to be very careful with this slide, because I, I don't want anyone to walk away with the impression that you know, Khan Academy is this, you know, it's, it's this miracle thing that you can just drop into a classroom, and the butterflies will fly, and the flowers will bloom. Uh, it's a tool. And like any tool, it's, it's going to be as effective as, as the folks who are, who are using the tool. 
And you know, a lot of what the results I'll talk about in a second are, in my mind, primarily due to the, the teaching staff at Oakland Unity. And just to get, get a sense, you know, this was a school that in 2010 was in the 20th percentile in the state of California amongst ninth grade algebra classes. And in that one year, without any Khan Academy, they, did, they were able to get the 76th percentile. So huge jump just by amazing teachers. And when we even asked the, the teacher, Peter McIntosh is the head teacher, what did you do? He's like, well, I, I just wanted them to kind of take ownership of what they were doing. So he was already, even without Khan Academy, trying to get into a self-directed, personalized learning world. But then he said, that, but then I felt it asymptoted because there was only so much that I could do with the students. And we were kind of hungry for this. And then I learned about Khan Academy. And then that's what took them to the point where in 2013, they, there, there's only nine ninth grade algebra classes in the state of California who have outperformed this classroom. And, and what's, been, what's been interesting about this is Peter McIntosh, he says, you know, yeah, the math is nice, it's great, it's nice that they have great math scores, but he sees it as something more than that. He sees it as a, mind, as a mindset changing tool where these students were typically, and this is not just this classroom, this is a lot of classrooms, they, they, they were passive. They say, teacher, tell me what to do next. Uh, yeah, I'm not good at math. Oh, they'll engage in a problem for four seconds and, and then they'll give up. And then sometimes you, the teacher, as, as the antagonist, hey, I, that person's going to try to fail me. They're going to give me a hard test. I have, to, I have to do a little gamesmanship with them. And it changes that to, okay, this is my goal. Here are all the tools that I have to reach my goal at my own time, at my own pace. And my teacher is a collaborator. They're trying to get me to, to where I need to go. And as soon as you have that self-direction, you have that ownership over your learning narrative, that pays dividends in every class you take. And they saw that, that these kids actually improved in other classes because they learned to, to take ownership of things. Now, now, the one thing that we remind ourselves is, you know, this is schools, but still the great majority of students are, are, are students using, you know, 90% of the 10 million who come to Khan Academy every month are just people who are using it on their own to tap into their potential, like may, maybe a lot of y'all were when you use it in high school or, or even use it today. And so this next video is kind of one of the, the coolest examples that we've seen recently on, on this. So I actually uh, dropped out of high school twice, um, both during my freshman year. Um, and when I eventually came back, I was put in sort of lower level math and science classes because I was so behind. Um, then I discovered Khan Academy. Um, and I was able to skip two years worth of math just through using the site. And I came into school, I took the exam with students who had been enrolled in the class all year. and. I was actually able to get the highest or the second highest scores in the class. Um, so for me, Khan Academy really changed the trajectory of my entire life. Um, because without it, I don't think I ever really would have been inspired to, to learn and to love math and to love science. Um, I ended up graduating as a valedictorian and going on to Princeton, where I'm now a computer science major. And I'm absolutely passionate about learning about computers, about math, about science. Um, and without Khan Academy, I don't think that these things would really matter to me the way that they do today. So I'd just like to say a massive thank you to everyone at Khan Academy, Saul and the team. Um, please keep doing the good work that you're doing because you're really changing lives. And, and what's been neat about that is when we found out he's a computer science major, uh, we said, hey, you know, we have internships. And I'll, I'll, for those of you all in the audience, I'll tell that as well. And, and you know, we'd love for you to apply. Uh, and he applies. And, and, and in the interview process, you know, strong hire, strong hire, strong hire. And, and actually had some of our engineers like, who is this guy? He's just, you know, rocking the interviews. And I, I said, well, why are you surprised? We, we helped educate him. I mean, <laughs> is this, is this, what's this? 
So actually, we, he, uh, we gave him an offer. He accepted. He's coming this summer, which is super exciting for us because it comes full circle. We're, we're, we're essentially solving our own labor problems. We're, uh, <laughs> we're, but it's neat. He'll be able to hopefully make Khan Academy that much better for the next generation of, of, of Charlies out there. Uh, this is something that maybe some of y'all uh, heard about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we, uh, we made an announcement. You know, the College Board made the announcement that they're launching a new SAT in 2016. Uh, and part of that, and, and this was what's kind of neat about it, it's the first time that the College Board uh, has recognized, I mean, they've always kind of known, but they're, they're, they're officially recognizing that there is this at least perceived inequity and probably real inequity around uh, people's access to prepare for the SAT or their familiar, familiarity with the SAT. And so um, the, the, their new president, David Coleman, he reached out to us, and we'd obviously been talking about this for some time. We only announced it a few weeks ago. But the goal is, in, you know, Leading up to that new SAT, so this time next year, we're going to be launching, you know, and I want to use the word very carefully, essentially, you know, the best free test prep for the SAT. But what we're excited about here is, you know, I, I, there's, there's two things we talk about is, you know, Khan Academy gets a lot of credit for the uh, free for anyone anywhere, but we take the world class part just as seriously, that we just don't want to get a free pass because we're free, but we can be a little bit substandard. For us, it's about being world class, that we want to be the best tool that just happens to be free. But above and beyond that, the reason why they really wanted to work with us is that they appreciate that we are not about, hey, you have the SAT tomorrow, here's 10 test-taking strategies to kind of slightly optimize your score, that we are really about learning, that we're about taking someone from one knowledge state and with enough perseverance and effort, they can get to another knowledge state. And maybe on top of that, they can polish and get familiar with the test and, and, and some strategies and whatever else. So our real goal is to... You know, and that's why I use the word test prep very carefully. This isn't going to be you know, uh, what, what you normally associate as kind of something superficial. This will be a very rich tool, heavy on analytics, where students can go, get as much practice as they need. It understands where they are, understands what they need to work on, and so that they can really kind of put their, their, their best foot forward when they, when they show up for you know, a fairly high stakes uh, examination. Everything I've talked about so far has been kind of the, the English-speaking world, the developed world. But as you can imagine, uh, some of what we're talking about could have even larger implications in, in the rest of the world. And this isn't something that I you know, personally spent a lot of cycles thinking about. You know, I was just working on whatever I thought was interesting next or working with schools in, in, in the U.S. and, and whatever else. Uh, but we had other NGOs and groups taking our stuff uh, offline, online, and taking them to... All over, the, all over the planet. This actually had started as early as 2007. And all of these are actual pictures of Khan Academy being used. And, and all of these are, are fairly exciting uh, stories in their own right. But probably the, the most exciting one, at least on, on this screen, is, is the one in the top right. You know, I used to say uh, talks like this, you know, who knows, maybe one day this will be used in Mongolia. Just imagining that's kind of the furthest place. And, and then I get a, a letter from the young woman in the top right from Mongolia. And uh, it's, it's actually kind of similar to Charlie's, where she, she had some text and she said, and she had a link to a YouTube video. I click on the video, and it was similar to Charlie's, thank you, I'm enjoying this, this has really helped me enjoy math, whatever else. And, and my initial impression was, oh, that's great, and, but you know, she spoke English quite well, she clearly had access to the site, clearly had access to YouTube. So I immediately assumed that she must be middle class or upper middle class. But then I read the text of the email, and it turned out that there were a group of volunteers from Cisco who were using their vacation time to go to Mongolia and set up computer labs with broadband in orphanages. And so what you see in the top right there, those are girls in the orphanage uh, using Khan Academy, and Zaya was one of those orphans. And that by itself was you know, kind of this science fiction epic thing to even process for us. 
Uh, but then on top of that, Zaya has since been one of our top contributors in the Mongolian language in terms of actually trans, you know, once again, like Charlie, uh, uh, contributing and giving back to, to the resource that, that, that hopefully um, helped, helped her. And kind of in line with this, how do we reach more people on the planet, uh, you know, we've been working on an internationalization effort, especially intensely this last uh, year and a half or so. And once again, it's not just about translating videos. That's definitely part of it. But it's about translating the entire experience. And the first full experience we launched was Spanish this past fall, where everything I showed, the computer science, the exercises, the teacher dashboards, and the videos are, are fully translated. And what, what's, what's really neat, and this was kind of a side effect. We actually didn't design for it, but it just happened. Uh, you could actually have a classroom where you have you know, five students who, because, you know, they might be weak in English, they can operate on the same mathematics, the same standards in Spanish, and then the, the teacher could get the dashboard in either English or Spanish. So it's kind of a neat way of, you know, your, your English shouldn't be your barrier to, to necessarily progressing in, in mathematics. So it's something we're, we're, we're pretty excited about. But to get a sense of what this all looks like in, in other languages, I'll, I'll show this next montage. so these are just more pictures of Khan Academy being used uh, all over uh, the planet. You know, these are just people like emailing this stuff to us, and we, uh, you know, we just get excited about it. And you know, the, the one thing that I tell everyone I talk to, I tell this to the team at Khan Academy, I remind them on a regular basis, I tell this to our supporters, to our volunteers, and I, I want to emphasize it's way more than just me now. We have 60 full-time employees, we've had nearly 100 teachers who have helped us write content, not just teachers, professors, uh, grad students helping us write content. We've had 14,000 people help us subtitle videos or work on the translation project in some way. So, so, and obviously there's so many teachers who are giving us feedback and whatever else. So it's much, much more than, than definitely me and even just our, our core organization. But what I tell everyone is, you know, this, this, this is kind of an exciting time. Uh, you know, and, and frankly, it's not just in education. There's other stuff going on as well. But even in education, it feels like, you know, we're definitely in an inflection point, information revolution, whatever, whatever. You'll, you'll hear a lot about that. But whenever you're, there's new inflection points, there's new problems, but then there's kind of a chance to create new institutions that address those, those new problems. And, and it was kind of a delusion when I'm literally walking, you know, sitting in my walk-in closet thinking, well, you know, maybe Khan Academy could, could be something like that. But it's becoming more and more real. And, and our hope is that really over the next 10, 15, 20 years, that just maybe we could, it's not going to happen overnight, this thing called learning, this thing called education that has historically been the, the key determinant between the haves and have-nots, uh, we can make it that much more equal. We can get that much closer to it being like clean drinking water or shelter, uh, a fundamental human right. And thank you.
we'll take questions. We'll take questions. Just so you know, I planted those first four people just so that you guys, I want to see how independently you think. So yeah, I'd love to take questions. Exactly, are we going to get that into the public schools? Like, yeah. Yeah, so the question is, you know, the idea of, you know, self-paced learning or personalized learning and, and, you know, using the classroom for more interactive things, you know, these are, you know, it makes sense and these uh, are maybe good ideas, but, but how do we actually get them into the system, into the public school system, especially, you know, you read about, you know, all of the barriers and all of the resistance to change and, and whatnot. You know, I don't know the, the answer for sure. You know, I, I think there's some reasons for optimism and then maybe some smaller reasons for, for a little bit of pessimism, but I think there's ways to get around it. You know, the optimism, Los Altos, which was the very first district to reach out, frankly, before we even thought about seriously that a district would even want to do this, they're a public school district. Obviously, they're in kind of a special place in Silicon Valley, and they're driven to a large degree by, by the parents who really want to see innovation happen for, for their students. Uh, but, you know, they had a very forward-thinking uh, uh, school board and, and, and superintendent and teachers, and it at least showed us that, you know, a lot of these, but, you know, they, a lot of the people that, that they, people often point the finger at, oh, unions, if you have unions, you're not going to be able to do anything, whatever. You know, they, they have all of those things, but they were able to move fast, and they were able to experiment. So, uh, to me, the big lesson was where, where there was a genuine will and a genuine desire, um, at least in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a school district like Los Altos, which is smaller and doesn't have all of the issues as some of the larger school districts have, they were able to move. Now, with that said, there was definitely a difference between when we started with four classrooms and five classrooms, and you had your four or five teachers who were just early adopters, you know, they got it before we even showed up, and you know, kind of like Peter McIntosh at Oakland Unity, and they, and it was like, you know, it was it was a great experience. But then when we went district wide, we started to see a little bit more of the reality that, you know, and once again, this isn't about good teacher, bad teacher. It's just about what what, what if you're a teacher, how what, what do you imagine the role of a teacher to be? And, and I, I think a lot of educators view their job as to cover the material. To, you know, at least if I've covered it, maybe you know, I've, I've done my job. I can go home and I can sleep properly. It takes a huge leap of faith if you're a ninth grade algebra teacher and you know, little Jimmy is, uh, is really, you know, you know that he doesn't even know how to you know, divide decimals, but you kinda, it takes a huge leap of faith to let him work on that, knowing that if he builds that strong foundation, later on algebra is going to be that much more intuitive for him. Instead, your, your impulse, well, let me just at least cover the algebra and let him learn to pattern match it a little bit so he can kind of pretend to answer the question so, I, so I've done my job. So our, our takeaway is a lot of, you know, the classroom, the optimistic, the classroom penetration has been far faster than we would have expected. At the same time, the full implementation is not as much as we would have expected. And so what we're trying to do now, you know, instead of, trying to go into District A or District B or School A or School B and say, hey, let's see if we can change together. We're not going the other way, where we're looking at the universe of people using us. Our first pass is just looking at the data, like who's using us in a substantive way. Then when we see that, we keep, we keep filtering it down to like, oh, these people are interesting. Let's visit them. Let's see how they're using it. And when we start to identify this handful of people who are getting it, frankly, they're getting it better than, than I would have gotten it. You know, they, they are, they, they're really pushing the envelope. Let's understand how they did it. And some of these people are in public school systems. Some of them are in charter schools. Some of them are in private schools. You know, what did the teacher have to do to kind of let the system let them do it? But then what are their practices? And so we're in the midst of that, 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 that part of it, where we're trying to understand what they're doing, document it, and then share it with, with other teachers. And then also helping them to, work, to push, where, you know, push their 
their boundaries further, where they've been able to do that much, but maybe if we help them and we recognize them, their school or their district will let them go even, go even further. So it, it, it's, a, it's an open question. My, 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 my general sense, and you know, very few people view education this way, but education is actually, it's fundamentally aspirational. It's all about, you know, everyone's always looking like, okay, who's, what's the institution that's better? What, what, what's the, the neighborhood that's incrementally better than mine? What are they doing? And I want to emulate them. And you see that throughout, you know, AP tests. AP tests is actually an example of a systemic change that happened without, you know, government intervention. It happened because in the 60s, I think, or maybe 70s, Phillips Andover uh, decided that, hey, you know, our, our students in calculus or chemistry or physics, this is a university-level course. Uh, we should get, you know, our students should get credit for this. And so they started working with an association of colleges, and they started to get credit for it. And then you could imagine some others said, well, you know, our, our students are just as good. We're just as good of a school. We're also going to do this. And then over the next 30, 40 years, we're now at the point where no, there's very few high schools in the country that kind of, you know, even aspire to be half decent don't offer AP courses. And so in our mind is if we can either highlight or help catalyze even a handful of, you know, exemplar, look at what they're doing. And it isn't just good to watch, but look at their data, look at the outcomes, both objective and subjective. Look at their students. They're healthier and they're able to do things that you wouldn't have expected uh, the students to be able to do. I think you're going to have kind of an aspirational effect. Now, once again, it's not going to happen overnight, but I think it will happen over time. I think we, you know, we, we, we got lucky where we fell into Los Altos. You know, most school reform, people go where it's most broken, where there's 20 variables that are really hard to fix. And even when they do fix it, they do these Herculean efforts, then the next district says, well, if this is such a good system, how come they're not doing it in Palo Alto? How come they're not doing it in Atherton? And what was interesting about this Los Altos experiment is, as soon as we did in Los Altos, all of a sudden Palo Alto wanted to talk to us. All of a sudden Atherton wanted to talk to us. All of a sudden the private schools wanted to talk to us. And the, the, the schools that were facing a much more difficult hurdles in the inner city wanted to talk to us. So it, it kind of helped us understand this, this dynamic of, yeah, if, if we can create some exemplars, I think we can start to have cracks form and, and people start moving in the right direction. Yeah? Um, how do you think this will translate into the university setting, specifically how um, Khan Academy provides education, but universities provide both education and certification? Yes. And, you know, this, so how, how, do, how, do, how will this translate in the university setting? And Khan Academy is kind of focused on, I'll phrase it, you said education. I would say, you know, education is made up of learning, credentialing, and socialization. And right now, most of what we're doing is the learning side of things, while university is kind of all three of those things. And, you know, I, I think there's, there's a bunch of, you know, in, in, in my book, The One World Schoolhouse, I, uh, the last third of it, there's a chapter on, like, what would a university, the idealized university of, of the future look like? And, you know, in, 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 in my mind, so one, I'll think about it from, you know, as at Conaca, we're always hiring. We're, we look at some of y'all's resumes. And, and what always impresses us you know, if I see Stanford on your resume, I was like, oh, you know, that's impressive because I know how hard it is to get into Stanford. Uh, you know, if, if you went someplace else, you said, I got into Stanford, and you actually showed evidence of that, it's pretty close. I mean, I know it's like a great experience and everything, but beyond that, I then care about, like, what have you done? What is, what is your, and it's hard for me to decipher a GPA or an A or B in this class or that. I want to see a portfolio of, of creative works. I want to see, hey, have you written an app? Have you written a book? Have you uh, ha have a painting or a sculpture? Whatever it might be, that, that is a huge signal to us. And what I'd also love to know is what, what, what do your peers think of you? Are, are you someone who, who contributes to a community who people want to work with? That's the person that I, that I want to work with. And so I imagine the ideal credential of the future is that. It has kind of a baseline. Yeah, these are your, your skills, your competencies. And frankly, I think 
pretty much everyone who, walks, who gets admitted to Stanford is kind of already there. I mean, that can get improved and they can learn more specialized things or broaden their, their knowledge, but they've, you know, they've already, their critical thinking skills are already quite, quite good. Uh, but then on top of that, I want to see what you've made and I want to see uh, kind of how, how you fit into a, a community. And so the university of the future, I think, would be very focused on that. It would be you come and, uh, you know, I was just at Carnegie Mellon last week, and I told them the same thing. I said, you know, Carnegie Mellon or Stanford or, you know, I went to MIT. I told the folks at MIT this. You know, especially with this caliber of student, they should come, and you have the community. You have all the great things, the dorms, the clubs, everything else. But your day-to-day is not in a lecture hall taking notes, you know, trying to prepare for the next exam. Your day-to-day is making things. Your day-to-day is making things on campus, doing research, collaborating, starting businesses, doing art installations, using the, the, the community around, and you're in Silicon Valley, leveraging this, doing, you know, internships at every firm year. It could be in tech, it could be in design, it could be in anything. Uh, and so when you come out, you have this amazing community, this amazing connections with all of your peers, uh, but you also have this incredible experience base and this incredible por- portfolio that would carry way more weight than you know, any, any, any GPA. So um, I hope that, you know, and, and I've, you know, I've heard even Don Hennessy say things to the effect uh, of, you know, yeah, you know, he doesn't see why there are you know, 300-person lecture halls in universities anymore and, and whatever else. And so, um, and I've heard other university presidents say the same thing. So, the, the hope is, you know, what's interesting about this whole MOOC thing that's happening, I think the, the single biggest thing is as soon as the MOOCs came out, you had a bunch of people, well, how do we know they work? And then, they, well, how do we know we work? Right? They immediately said, wait, we have never really had to address that question. You know, we've, never, we've never done a double blind, like, here are the students who took physics in 1998, here are the students who did not take physics in 1998, now that it's 2008, let's randomly find them and give them a physics test. And let's see if there's any discernible difference between the, the scores on, on, on the two. So it actually started making higher ed, and you know, I would say the ivory tower especially, the Harvards, the Stanfords, the MITs, start to really reflect on, well, you know, gee, we've been kind of getting a free pass for several hundred years. Um, I, I, maybe it's time that we introspect on, on ways that we can up our game. And, um, you know, and, and that's, you know, I think, overall been a very healthy thing. But yeah, I, I see the, I, I, I think in five or, t- I, I think definitely 10 years, you're not going to have the 300-person lecture hall anymore. Uh, there in the back in the tie-dye shirt. Yes. Um, so obviously, Khan Academy is incredible with mathematics and sort of quantitative subjects. How are you going to transition into more creative things? Like it looks like you did a lot of really awesome stuff in computer science, but what about teaching someone to understand Shakespeare or write a paper or deliver a speech or paint or something like that? Yeah, no, good question. So you know, right now, at least in the math stuff, we've handled a lot of the kind of the core traditional math skills, but even there I would say we're, we haven't gone into the creative part of math. You know, we're not telling students, hey, create a novel proof. You know, how are we going to measure whether they did that and, and things like that. Um, so how do we start to think about that? And as you point out, you know, our, our computer science was kind of the first stab at that. Where, you know, we didn't want to say, hey, learn to write a for loop. Okay, now you know that. Now we'll do while loops and, and, and whatever else. We said, no, look, it's a creative thing. You should start with a blank slate. We can give you examples. We can give you tutorials. But the real goal is for you to build a portfolio of, of work and get peer feedback on the portfolio. I mean, this is what happens at design schools and schools of architecture and, 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 and fine art schools and things. And so what, what I imagine, and you know, once again, I view Khan Academy as a piece of a whole education spectrum. So even Khan Academy today, if, if I'm architecting a school, um, the way I view it is education is a huge spectrum of things. 
at this end is kind of the most at this end is the most kind of rote you know your multiplication tables and you know spelling and whatever else and then as you maybe just go more and more in this direction it's more and more open ended more and more creative uh, and more and more opportunities to succeed and fail and if you know Khan Academy. I'd like to think is already not just doing, you know, it's, it's already hopefully giving you some intuition of traditional mathematics and this and that. The computer science tackles a little bit here. We have some videos on, on some, some things that, that touch on the humanities. It, it's not claiming to give you the full, even frankly, math education. It's, it's, but it's covering some of the pieces that would be helpful to be exposed to in a math education so that you can focus more on, on this part of it. So in, in, a, in a classroom, that would free up more time, hopefully, for Socratic dialogue, for, for a crit, you know, critiques, for, for peer feedback. In a humanity setting, you, you know, I, I think any time that there's a, an opportunity for explanation, um, why not make it as a video? And once again, I wouldn't force it on people. You know, and this is coming from someone who's made you know, 4,000 videos. I think the videos are the least important part of Khan Academy. That, that they're there in case you need them. You know, if you do have, hey, I, I wonder how that works, that's a nice thing to have that explanation on demand. But I don't think that should be forced on someone. So I could imagine, say, in something like history, it, it doesn't hurt to have a scaffold. It doesn't hurt to have a big picture. So you know, we've done a, a few videos already on Khan Academy. You saw the Walter Isaacson video. We're uh, partnering with the Aspen Institute. And you know, there's going to be some neat conversations with Walter Isaacson and some you know, people that you will be surprised to see on Khan Academy, people that you've seen in the public sphere. And, and, and to, but, but talk about things that they don't talk about on CNN, to talk about you know, the, the, the Third Amendment. How come that one never gets the attention? You know, the, and, and, and dig deep and be intellectual about things. Um, and, and so that gives people scaffold. And you know, Khan Academy will give some opportunity for people to communicate about it and whatever else. But then if you have that kind of as a scaffold, then you can go deeper in the classroom. The teacher doesn't have to give the lecture anymore once again. It could be more about Socratic dialogue. And you know, frankly, this, this has always been happening in a good humanities class, where, hey, read the book or read the article and let's discuss it. And now this will just give you more resources to experience at your own time and pace. And, and then you can go into the classroom and go deeper. Writing, I actually could imagine very similar to computer science, where it's you get a place to write. We could suggest projects for you. We, we, you know, we might give you some workshops, so to speak. But, you write, you get peer feedback, you build a portfolio, you get rated on your portfolio, you rate other people's work. Um, so so I, I think there's ways we can do, but I won't claim that that's going to give you everything. Yeah, right here. Uh, going forward, what would you say that Khan, Academy, Khan Academy's biggest challenge would be? So the question was going forward, what will be our biggest challenge? And so as an as a executive director of a, of a not-for-profit, I will say you know, we're always fundraising. So that's, our, uh, that's, a, that's an important. Uh, uh, but, but I think our, our biggest challenge is, um, I, I think it's, you know, it's staying true to our mission. It's, it's not getting distracted, not, you know, I, I would say, you know, we have found ourselves, you know, we're not-for-profit. We're obviously kind of in a different, we're playing a different game than everyone in Silicon Valley. But at the same time, it's tempting because we're in this place that has certain value systems, some of them positive, some of them can sometimes not be positive, where you do say, oh, you know, they, they have that many unique users, and we have this many unique users, and they, you know, we grew 50% this year, you know, they grew 51% this year, and boy, we, we have to emulate what they're doing, otherwise we're going to fall behind and all of that. And, and, you know, and, and it's human nature to kind of fly, and it's healthy, actually, to have that competitiveness. I mean, that's sometimes missing from, from some nonprofits. But I think what we what we've keep reminding ourselves is we're not for profit for a reason, that we want to kind of play the long game, that we don't want to just you know, grow fast, have some type of exit or some type of acquisition, and then you know, who cares what happened? I'm done, and I'll, you know, I'll you know, go, go do what I need to do. Um, that we, we, we want to be around in, in 100 years or, or 200 years. And we want to be at a place where 
it, it, you know, five or ten, you know, Silicon Valley has a place, you know, when it's five people, it's really kind of wild west. You start getting some people. As soon as you have some traction in the marketplace, you start attracting kind of talent from, you know, and you start getting kind of your best talent right around that phase. Then, you know, kind of you go into the IPO. Right as you're approaching the IPO, you start to get a few people who start thinking a little more in terms of dollar signs. Uh, then the IPO happens, and then people are looking for the next adventure. And then you see a lot, I mean, the story is told over and over again in Silicon Valley. 10 or 15 years in the future, it's not the place that the, the hotshot Stanford grad wants to work anymore. It's, it's you know, they want to do the, the new company that was where this company was 15 or 20 years ago. And we don't want to be that. We want to make sure that we're always attracting the best people, that we're always an organization that's innovating, that's always focused on our bottom line, which is our mission. And so, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we, we have, you know, growth that we can be proud of for us. If, if we had to pick two different realities, one reality where a billion people are using us, but they're using us in a, you know, it's a nice place to look up stuff and, you know, answer their questions. That's one reality. Uh, and another reality is 10 million people are using us. We don't grow at all, but it's a substantive experience. And we are changing their life, and we are, like, we're actually helping to educate them, and we can measure it. We would rather do the, the second of the two uh, experiences, because at least in our mind, that's a, a, more, a more substantive place, place to be. I'll go on, I'll go, they told me to, well, uh, Professor Selix, okay. I understand that you're thinking of actually starting a school. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So, and I'll, 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 I'll do this on a leap of faith, no tweeting about this. I, I don't know how much control I have. This, this part. No, no, it's okay to bring it up. No, no, there's, it's, not, it's not like a, a top secret thing. No, so the simple answer is yes. Uh, we, we, we are exploring it. And, you know, in my book, I, I kind of outline what a school of the future could look like. And, you know, I, I think we, hopefully we all appreciate from this conversation is that, you know, we don't view Khan Academy as just a website. We view it as an organization that's out to create tools and catalyze change. And, and, um, and, and you know, the, the, the idea behind a school is, you know, going to that, that earlier question about how do you create change and how do you create aspirations. Well, you know, we've seen even the most forward-thinking schools they still have a lot of constraints around them. Some of them imposed by others, sometimes imposed by their own minds, that, hey, the bell's going to ring every 55 minutes, or we have to separate physics from calculus from art, and, or we have to separate kids by age group, or, or just even the way the school is, even if they believe everything we say, just the way the school is built keeps them from doing a lot of what we're talking about. And so um, there's nothing like having a five-year-old that makes you think about, well, what's he going to do? And my daughter, two and a half, what's she going to do? And so, you know, maybe we hit several birds with one stone, and it's, nothing's final yet. But, yeah, we are exploring um, in this area, um, uh, kind of starting a, I guess for lack of a word, a lab school. And, you know, the whole idea is, is it, it, would, it would be, you know, and once again, I said no tweeting because I don't want to make it seem too formal because we don't, nothing is in stone yet. And, frankly, we also want to give it room for it to breathe and fail. I mean, if, if you're really experimenting, you're going to fail. If, if, you know, so, so, and we want it to have room to fail so it doesn't have, oh, after one month, look, it's not working. You know, it's, 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 this thing isn't, this isn't the, the right project. But the whole idea is rethink all assumptions, um, and then, but then share everything, and then just kind of open it up to the world, and, and hopefully make it a place where we can have teachers visit, we can have educators visit, um, and uh, officials visit, and see what we're talking about, of, of what is possible. And what I've told everyone involved in this is, you know, this isn't, if we just kind of create another school that gets, you know, kids in Silicon Valley into Stanford or whatever, you know, that's not... That's not a big, that won't be an achievement for us. I mean, that's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy on, on some level. We, 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 in order for this to, to, to be aspirational and to create change, we have to show things that people haven't seen before. 
um, show that 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds are capable of engaging in the world. They're capable of contributing to organizations, of starting things, of, of, of having novel ideas, of, of taking on real responsibility for themselves and, and for their peers. And, you know, and, and we'll see. We'll, we'll test, test where, that, where that boundary is. Fabulous. I'm sure all of you agree that this is truly inspiring. Join me in thanking Sal Conley. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.